Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto Thee that Thou art the Lord, that all things are in Thy hands who doest all things well. And so we come to Thee that by Thy Word and by Thy Spirit we may be made more than conquerors as we face a world of evil, a world in which iniquity rules in high places, a world that is determined to defy thee. But thou, O Lord, who sittest on the circle of the heavens, doth laugh. Thou dost hold them in derision. Fill us with thy heavenly laughter and make us strong and bold as we face the powers of darkness, that in Christ's name we may triumph. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us turn to Matthew 7, verses 13 through 20. We have been going through the Sermon on the Mount, and we now come to the last portion of it. In our next meeting, two weeks hence, we shall conclude the Sermon on the Mount with verses 24 following. Our subject as we deal with Matthew 7, 13 through 20 is the unity of life. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now it is important as we read the Bible to read it as a unity. As we read a book of the Bible, we need to read it as a unity. Too often people do not pay attention to the unity of the Bible. One of my favorite stories has to do with something that took place in the 30s in an Episcopal or Church of England school for boys in England. Those of you who are familiar with the Episcopal Church and a part of my seminary training was Episcopal know of the lectionary which prescribes daily readings for morning and evening prayer from the Old Testament and the New. In this particular chapel service, boys rotated as readers reading the daily lesson. And this boy had the 
portion of reading to do that had to do with Paul's shipwreck. His reading went through the storm. When he finished the appointed portion, he kept on reading into the next chapter. And the headmaster whispered to him, that's enough, you've finished the reading. The boy kept on reading. And finally, the headmaster uh, stood up and said, that's enough, you've come to the end of the daily lesson. And the boy said, shut up, I want to see what happened. (laughs) Now, that boy made more sense than the lectionary. Why? Because he wanted to read the study for the day, the lesson for the day, in context to see what happened. Too often we fail to do it. And as a result, we miss the meaning of Scripture. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is a unity. What our Lord does is to begin with certain statements concerning blessedness, happiness, prosperity. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they who feel their spiritual need. Blessed are the meek, that is, those who have been broken to harness, who have been tamed, who are now disciplined and usable by God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We must remember the context. Our Lord is dealing with how to be blessed, happy, prosperous, successful. No one has as their goal in life unless they're twisted and warped in their outlook. Misery, unhappiness, and failure. And our Lord says, I am the way. Here is the way. Hear my word. And so he says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the way, and narrow is uh, straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be that find it. What is he talking about? Well, the straight way, the straight gate, means straight, literally, restricted, crushed in. And it is an image common to the ancient world, far beyond the borders of Palestine, for the way of discipline, of discipleship. And the point is that most people do not want to be disciplined. They do not want to be effective in their lives. They just want to live and enjoy life on a minimum basis as far as responsibility is concerned, as far as discipline is concerned. Discipline today is not a popular word. We've lost a great deal of its meaning because we have become an undisciplined generation. Some time back I referred to certain aspects of discipline when I was dealing two or three years ago in our Friday night series on educational philosophy. And I pointed out, to summarize briefly, 
on earlier generations because discipline was so much a part of life, especially among the Puritans, that abilities were greatly heightened, focused, and brought to life. Child prodigies were, for a few centuries there, very commonplace. Child prodigies who at the ages of four, five, six were performing remarkable things, composing works of music which are still enjoyed. Or like Pascal, able by the age of nine and ten from a single sentence to reconstruct all of geometry. His father had wanted him to concentrate on other areas of mathematics and had not taught him geometry. But from a single sentence defining geometry, Pascal was able to construct all of it. Now, true, he was a genius, but it was routine in the early years of the last century for young Americans to go to sea at seven to nine years of age and to be ship's officers by the time they hit their teens and to be a captain of a ship at 18. That was commonplace. These were not geniuses. It was discipline that was the keynote. A discipline that enabled them to master things very early. My father, in terms of the kind of schooling he had, and while he was a university man trained in Europe, nonetheless, those of his classmates who were farmers had the same characteristics, could remember into his old age the name of every textbook he had and the author from the first grade on through the university. I forgot the theorems of geometry and my algebra three or four years out of high school. He could remember them all. Now that kind of training was once routine. I believe it will come back as the Christian school movement develops and grows. But this is what it speaks of here, the straight gate, the way of discipline but even more the way of discipline and discipleship in Christ who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The straight gate, the straight way is the way of responsibility, of discipline into a responsible life, redeeming the time for the days are evil. A discipline with regard to time, life, our abilities, everything. Nothing, of course, comes cheaply. Everything in life has its invisible prices and rewards, something this century has failed to learn. Then our Lord goes on to say, ye shall know them by their fruits. There is a unity in life. One of the deadliest doctrines unleashed into Western civilization comes from the Greeks. And it was a doctrine that divided man into two beings, mind 
and matter. Some held a tripartite view, mind, soul, and matter. But basically the division was two kinds of beings which were in an unhappy fusion. The two were more or less unrelated so that you could be physically guilty of many things, as with Socrates, who could discourse on virtue while indulging in homosexuality. But morally, your mind could be pure because your heart was supposedly pure. This is, of course, what the problem was in the Corinthian church, where, as Paul said, they boasted of their liberty. Fornication, incest, none of these things mattered. After all, they were pure of heart. What they did with their body was something else. This was the dualistic view. Now we have this, not in the extreme fashion that the Greeks held it, but in a modified form so that people will jump on you if you say something about someone, saying you can't judge the heart. Maybe they did this and that, but you can't judge the heart. Or our Lord is speaking against that kind of thinking. Remember, the time that our Lord lived was unlike any other age in the history of the world except ours, in that it was a time when civilization was essentially urban, very cosmopolitan. Life in Jerusalem and in the cities of Judea was not like the pictures we see of the Holy Land in uh, artists' depictions. Everybody, besides speaking Aramaic, which was then the modern form of Hebrew, spoke Greek. Many of them spoke Latin. Jerusalem had its Roman baths. It had a sizable element of the population that greatly admired Greek culture and others who were very pro-Latin in their cultural orientation. These people prided themselves on their urbane ways. Naturally, Jesus, coming from Galilee, was regarded uh, as a hick despite his obvious education, his learning. Is there anything good out of Galilee or Nazareth? That was their attitude. The Hicks couldn't produce anything. Their perspective was urban, and they had picked up this doctrine, the heart. But out of the heart are the issues of life and ye shall know them by their fruits. So our Lord gives us the answer to these people who tell us, oh, you can't judge the heart. You can. By their fruits shall ye know them. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Now, what our Lord here makes emphatic 
is the unity of life. The unity of life. As one of the old Puritans observed once, he said, you can put figs on thistles and you can put grapes on thorns, but they cannot grow there. And figs on thistles and grapes on thorns very quickly are detectable as out of place. They wither. So our Lord is making clear that false prophets can easily be detected. He's giving us a means of judging the church. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So his whole point here is those who come to you and who deny this unity of life, the doctrine of the carnal Christian, for example, which is very widely promoted. We have a man who has very extensively promulgated this doctrine in The Lordship of Christ, which Ross House Books has published. Dr. Tenpass deals with one very prominent preacher of this carnal doctrine who says that once you say yes to the Lord and you say, yes, Lord, I accept you as my Savior, you can then be a murderer, an adulterer, you can forget about the Lord and become an atheist, but you're still saved because in your heart now you're right with the Lord. Our Lord says, By their fruit shall ye know them. And what can you say of a preacher who promotes this kind of doctrine, which is very popular, extremely popular? Why? He is a false prophet come to you in sheep's clothing, but actually a wolf. The Greek view is false. Our Lord spoke clearly against it. By their fruits shall ye know them. And every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, our Lord there is not talking about the ungodly. There's no question there. He's talking about trees that are supposedly within the pasture or the orchard of the Lord. He's talking about antinomians, those who despise God's law. You don't keep a dead tree or a worthless tree going. You cut down the thistles you cut down the thorns that grow in your field, in your vineyard or your orchard. And this is what our Lord is talking about. And this is why the scriptures tell us judgment shall begin where? At the house of God. At the house of God. So that when God sees evil in the world, surely it is a time of judgment. And we live now in a time of judgment. And God's judgment begins at the house of God in every generation when he begins to bring judgment on the world. Therefore, our Lord is summoning us 
to be the blessed meat, the tamed of God, broken to harness, so that indeed our life is in terms of the straight way, the disciplined way, and we bear fruit unto him. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we give thanks unto thee that thy word is truth, that thou hast called us to discipleship, to responsibility, and to bear fruit unto thee. Make us faithful, make us productive, make us responsible, and manifest thy so great salvation, thy victory in and through us, and grant, O Lord, that the kingdoms of this world might speedily become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions about our lesson today? Yes. What's the difference between removing the thistles from the trees here but not removing the tares from the wheat, as in chapter 13. A very good question. In chapter 13, we have the parable of the tares and the wheat. The tares, we have to, first of all, know what we mean by the tares. The tares are a false wheat. They are something that looks like wheat, but is not discernible as wheat until it ripens. It's ready to produce. Now, thorns and thistles are obviously what they are, and a dead tree is obviously what they are. And what our Lord says in the parable of the tares and the wheat is that you're not going to be able to tell in the early stages, so don't try. Wait. Wait until they are fully what they are, until it's open, obvious. In other words, it's near the time of harvest when the darnel or tares are obviously what they are and the wheat is obviously what it is. Then, he says, the angels of judgment will separate them. So, it's not that they're not to be separated, but there is a difference. The thistles are very obvious. The tares are only obvious when the showdown comes. Now, we have a good example of a tear in the New Testament in Paul's circle. Someone who is with him on one missionary journey after another. And then finally, at the point of showdown, left Paul and forsook the faith. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. So, you see, he was a tear. It was not obvious until a certain point, and then the separation came. The circumstances compelled Demas to leave. He wasn't ready to pay the price. Yes? In uh, verse 14, Christ speaks of, uh, few there be that find the narrow way that leadeth unto life. That would seem to indicate that there will be very few actually saved. What does he mean right now? No, that? in many passages we are told how many they are that are saved, a great throng innumerable. 
and some of the theologians like uh, Bellamy and Hopkins uh, doing some demographic uh, computations said that in due time the population of the world will be so great that compared to what it is now the number will be astronomical and with the greater majority of mankind in those days brought into the faith the ratio of those saved to those lost they said it will be something like 17,000 to 1 well we know there are more people alive today than have ever died in the whole history of mankind to date now what is meant there remember the straight gate means the way of discipleship of discipline of responsibility of fullness of service so most people are unwilling to take that way most people want to be saved to, to get in you know by the skin of their teeth they want to treat the faith as fire insurance and life insurance so they're content to say that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior and not Lord what wouldst thou have me to do their lives don't count for much so our Lord is summoning the disciples and all who are truly of the faith to become productive and the warning is that if they don't bear fruit or if their fruit reveals they're alien, they're going to be cut off. Remember in John uh, 14, our Lord speaks of the fact that I am the vine and ye are the branches. And what does he say? The branches that aren't bearing fruit are going to be pruned off and thrown into the fire. So you'd better uh, produce. So the straight way means full faithfulness of service well then the few that he speaks of there he's making that's contemporaneous then he's speaking in terms of the of the few that would select that way uh, during that period of time of history are the few that within the faith you see he's talking to the disciples the few who really want uh, to uh, be Christians in the full sense of the word who want to live up to the requirements most want to be uh, seat warmers rather than soldiers so in other words in any at any period of time of history it would be of the total people within the church or who claim to be within the church there would really be few that were really of the faith or a few who are responsible in terms of it in other words most of them are ready to be uh, minimum christians and the danger is they will be none at all. That's the idea. Any other questions or comments? Yes. Um, I don't get any economic newsletters or read any economic newsletters. I just wondered if there's anything in the economic field you'd care to bring up to date, uh, bring us up to date on it. There's not much to say about the economic outlook except that it's a time of judgment. We're going to see very heavy inflation. And uh, 
I don't see much hope of altering that on the part of the new administration. The cabinet choices indicate that it's going to be more of the same. We have someone who's a little nicer than Jimmy, but not much better. So the economic outlook is for more inflation. The time will come when the 20% interest rate we see today will look like it is a modest interest rate. So 20% is just a harbinger of what's coming. Borrow money at that, or use that 20% rate, but it's just there'll be more money in the in circulation to allow them to do that. Probably. Banks were loaning money in Germany in the inflation of the 20s, even when it was up to 90%. There were always takers. Well, with that, we will. Adjourn until two weeks from now.